This is an ABC podcast. When it comes to sex education in this country, we're doing it all wrong. That's what a lawyer reckons. She was so, so tired of seeing the same kinds of cases turn up to her over and over again that she decided we need to figure out what to do. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast, and soon you're going to hear from this criminal prosecutor who says the community is letting young people down. She's pleading for an overhaul of sex ed right across the country. Also, a bit later, I've got some good news for you. I know you're not used to that, but I do. You're always hearing about threatened species, but what about newly discovered ones? Because there's been a whole heap over the past year. Very interesting. First, though. Hack. Well, we need to be careful of framing monkeypox as a gay disease because it's not. On Triple J. You might have heard that Australia's monkeypox vaccine rollout has started this week. Not everyone can get a vaccine at the moment because there is a really limited supply around the world. So it means that the vaccines are being prioritised for groups that are most at risk, like gay and bisexual men. And that's because 98% of monkeypox cases globally are men who have sex with men. It's a big issue and it is one we need to be fully across because there's already worries about stigma in the community. Ellie Grounds has more. I'm one of the first 100 cases of monkeypox in Australia which is uh, not what I envisioned myself getting into the top 100 for, but, you know, take life as it comes. This is Jack. He's 26 and lives on Gadigal land in Sydney and a couple of weeks ago returned from a holiday in the United States. I had a summer holiday fling who I unfortunately caught monkeypox off of and I'm grateful he was very mature about it and let me know. And, yeah, so I've now been going through the process of isolating with monkeypox. Jack says he's been fairly lucky with his symptoms. He did get painful swollen lymph nodes in his groin area, which meant he couldn't do much except lie down for a couple of days. But he reckons the skin lesions he got, they're one of the main symptoms of monkeypox, were pretty mild. They were a little bit itchy, a little bit painful, but thankfully um, the ones in sensitive areas weren't in anywhere that kind of got in the way of life. And the ones that were across the rest of my body were very small and mostly unnoticeable. Jack is one of 57 confirmed or probable cases of monkeypox in Australia. And like him, most of those are people who were infected overseas, mainly in Europe or the US. There are now more than 30,000 cases globally. So are experts super worried this is going to be the next huge pandemic? Let's ask one. My name is uh, Professor David Sharkey. I'm the head of immunology and infectious diseases at the John Curtin School of Medical Research at the ANU, which is a long mouthful. I have studied viruses and the immune system for, well, something like 30 years. And, and actually, I've been studying pox viruses since the late 90s. Professor Sharkey says monkeypox has actually been around in humans since the 70s. And there have been a bunch of outbreaks since then. It can affect anybody, but this latest global outbreak is predominantly affecting men who have sex with men. Why it's there? Hmm. This is a kind of a difficult one, except for to say that, that viruses really exist just to spread. Like, that's what they do. Um, and that means that they can wind up sometimes being within boundaries of particular communities. And I think what this is telling us is that this virus doesn't spread really well, right? You have to have quite close and intimate contact. Unlike COVID, which can be transmitted by airborne particles and droplets, monkeypox needs direct skin-to-skin contact to spread. And Professor Sharkey says that's a good thing. That's perhaps something that should be reassuring. This is 
very unlikely to go ballistic, you know, and suddenly be the next big global pandemic. There is a theoretical risk that that could happen. Another good thing, this week we started vaccinating those most at risk of infection. Five and a half thousand vaccines have so far gone to New South Wales and three and a half thousand to Victoria. 22,000 doses are expected to be in the country by the end of the week. One of the great things, in fact, about the vaccines we have is you could administer that vaccine even after you've had contact. So within the first few days after contact and you'll be protected from the disease. So that strategy was, is called ring vaccination. It was very effective against smallpox and it'll be effective against monkeypox. Jack's pox are now clearing up and he's got some friends who have already managed to get a vaccine. He says seeing how seriously his community is taking this outbreak of monkeypox has put his mind at ease. It's not a gay disease. It's not just gay men who can catch this disease. It just happens to be a disease affecting gay men. And the only positive to that that I can see is that due to history with things like the HIV uh, epidemic is as a community, we're very conscious of our health. And I think what I'm seeing is a very uh, positive reception to health messaging. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story. We have had like a few dozen cases of monkeypox reported in Australia, but other countries like the US are a lot further ahead. So I thought it was probably a good idea to check in with how things are going there, because as we saw during COVID, we can learn a lot by looking at what's happened overseas already. So with me now is David Mack. He's a senior reporter with BuzzFeed in New York, and he has been covering monkeypox in the US extensively. Hey, Dave, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Long-time listeners will know that I used to read the news for Triple J, so I it's good know. to be back. I know. It's good to have you back on Triple J. You've gone a long way since those days. We're very proud of you, Dave. But now you're in New York and you're covering lots of big issues, politics, but also this monkeypox situation. What is the situation at the moment in the US? Because I saw that it's been declared a national public health emergency. So things are getting really intense, right? Yeah, it's fair to say it's uh, it's a bit of a mess and it's got a lot of people worried. You know, about a third of the current, uh, so excuse me, a quarter of the uh, roughly 28,000 cases or so around the world are here concentrated in the US. About They've got about 7,000 cases so far. There's only two states in the whole country where they haven't um, found someone with the, the virus so far. So yeah, there's the, the administration here, the Biden administration declared a public health emer- emergency, which... Uh, Sounds scary, but is actually a sort of legal classification that allows them to, you know, move money around more easily. And they've done this in the past for COVID, obviously, but also for things like the opioid crisis and sort of hurricanes and wildfires. We're seeing here in Australia that the vaccine rollout is kind of starting. It's in its very early stages. What's it like in the US? Is there a lot of access to vaccines? Has there been criticism about how that process has worked there? Yeah, you uh, won't be surprised to learn that vaccine rollout has been a bit of a mess here too. Uh, We are seeing uh, a couple hundred thousand doses go out to the state so far and the administration has promised about 800,000 more. But look, to be honest, that's way, way too few, right? There's a huge weight in states across the country. Only a few people have obviously been able to get their first dose so far, let alone their second dose. Remember, this is a two-dose vaccine. So, uh, you know, federal officials here have ordered about 7 million doses of the vaccine, but they're not going to arrive for a few months. So it's going to be a bit more of a wait. 
do people generally seem concerned? Like, is there worry in the community? Yeah, there definitely is. I myself know about half a dozen people who've contracted the the virus. It's wow. extremely painful. No one wants this. The, the stories that I'm hearing from friends are absolutely horrendous, just the, you know, excruciating pain that they're in with these lesions. Uh, so it's definitely a topic of concern and conversation. More and more people, though, I know, are also getting their vaccine. I've been able to get mine myself. Um, so we are seeing things hopefully go in the right direction. You wrote an article that received a bit of backlash online um, and part of the reason that people were angry was that you referenced this advice from the World Health Organisation that men who have sex with men should reduce their sexual partners for now. Did the reaction to that story surprise you? It did. I mean, you know, Dave, I'm gay and I was accused of being anti-gay in the comments of this story. Uh, People saying it was perpetuating, you know, stigma and focusing on, you know, it was by concentrating on advice for gay men that was going to, you know, make them the target of public ire. And, you know, as we saw back perhaps in the HIV crisis, the beginning of the AIDS crisis, right? But look, the the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, more than 98% of known cases around the world are among men who have sex with men at the moment. This is a virus that is spreading in my community. And here was the WHO trying to give what I kind of commend is practical advice, telling people advice on what to do about their sex life at the moment if they want to try to reduce their risk. Um, So I I think they were just being practical. And I think the public is smart enough to understand that, yes, this is a virus that anybody can get, but right now it is spreading primarily uh, through sex between gay and bisexual men. But are you seeing this difficult situation at the moment, both um, in terms of the media coverage and the advice that's coming from authorities, health officials, that they need to get the important health information out there, but they're trying not to be stigmatized as well. That's very true. You know, I was speaking to uh, some straight people the other day who had no idea they hadn't heard about monkeypox at all. So, you know, this is going to be a lot of people's first impression of this virus, that it is something that is spreading, you know, primarily amongst men who have sex with men. But I think the media can do a, a good job if they try of putting in context, right, and making sure that people know that this can go to anyone. There have been women uh, infected. There have been tragically a couple of cases of kids getting this as well. But the the clear thing is that this is primarily spreading through gay men uh, and bisexual men, and it's through prolonged periods of skin-to-skin contact. And the easiest uh, and most transmissible way for that to happen is during sex. And the World Health Organization, are they kind of struggling with their messaging a bit or has that changed over the course of the past few months? They've definitely said that, you know, there's a fine line that they're trying to walk in terms of trying to target advice towards a particular community, but also make sure that that community does not become, you know, a target for uh, for stigma. Uh, and all they can do is, you know, their jobs and try to get health information out, practical health information out that people can act on and make decisions about their own personal health. And yeah, as I said, the media also plays a role in that as well. Dave, you are Australian, so you've got a lot of mates um, back here as well. Are you getting questions from your friends in Australia about what's happening overseas or are you talking to them a lot and saying, hey, this is a big issue over here, Um, you guys should be prepared as well? Weirdly not. Uh, I think obviously the the outbreak here has been a lot bigger and so it's uh, much more of a topic of conversation amongst my friends here. But uh, it does appear, based on my loyal reading of ABC News, that this is starting to become more of an issue in Australia and there are obviously growing fears. Uh, Hopefully the vaccine rollout 
gets underway there properly soon as well so we can all sort of protect ourselves and put this thing to rest. Uh, it's definitely a really big issue around the world. We'll be keeping an eye on it, but appreciate your insights from very far from home. Dave Mack from BuzzFeed, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Cheers, Dave. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Yeah, and we will keep you updated with the vaccine rollout, health information in the weeks ahead, all of that stuff so you can stay updated. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, what's the deal with all the outbreaks these days? Just because COVID went global doesn't mean everyone needs to. Yeah, it feels a bit like that. Perhaps not mutual masturbation, but definitely masturbation on one end. It's a very serious idea. I feel like it kind of adds to the being in love. Triple J. Imagine if sex education wasn't just some weird and awkward experience at school, but it was a legitimate public health issue. Like, it wouldn't just involve talking to high school students, but people of all ages, young kids, parents, teachers, everyone, to make sure that we're all on the same page. In some parts of the world, they're already doing this, but in Australia, we're still lagging behind. That's what one lawyer reckons. She was so sick and tired of seeing a never-ending string of sexual assault cases turn up on her desk that she wanted to figure out what to do. And her answer is a massive rethink of everything that we're teaching young people. Her name's Katrina Marson. She's done a lot of research on the issue and has written a book about it. It's out now and it's called Legitimate Sexpectations. Katrina is with me now. G'day. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. Look, you're a criminal prosecutor, so you've seen the full impacts of sexual assault dealing with cases day after day. And I guess it got to the point where you were like, hold on, what are we actually doing to stop this? Because there is, as you say, this conveyor belt of assault cases. They keep coming. And we've got leaders, parents, the community promising young people this life free of sexual violence, promising young people sexual safety, autonomy. But it sounds like, Katrina, you feel that young people are pretty much being let down. What do we need to do? Uh, Listening to young people is a great start. (laughs) It Uh, always helps. (laughs) Listening to what they're telling us they need um, in terms of both the content of the sex education as well as the delivery that's a great place to start, acknowledging that this is something that young people have a right to, that they are entitled to. It isn't a chore. It's not some kind of punishment. It's something that all young people have a right to access. And it's time for us to consider the role that we all play in um, fulfilling that obligation that we owe young people. So it's not just for teachers. It's not just for parents. We all need to consider our part in the collective responsibility we have to make sure that we're changing the attitudes, the environmental factors, the things that drive sexual violence and negative sexual experiences. You've kind of found the way that we're dealing with sex education in Australia is flawed. What are the main issues for you? In Australia, sex education is fairly inconsistent. I think that's the best way to describe it. Obviously, the states and territories have control over education uh, for the main part and um, for the most part. And so it means that you're getting a really different picture, um, not only between the states and territories, but even within them. And for some young people, that means that they are getting nothing when it comes to sex ed. For others, it might mean condoms on bananas and no means no. 
And certainly there are some young Australians who are getting really good comprehensive relationships and sexuality education. If we think of this as something that all young people are owed and are entitled to, we need to look to the consistency. We need to look at scaling up our efforts uh, so that we can actually make it a guarantee. And to do that, it's useful to think of it in my view, as a matter of public well-being, as a public health issue, and seeing that as having the urgency that it does uh, will hopefully help push us in the direction of, as I say, guaranteeing young people access to this um, education in a way that doesn't leave any of them out. Yeah, and what you said there about making it like a public health issue, can you describe like what other countries are doing? Because I know that you talk about Germany, for instance, which has added this kind of area to the health department. What what kind of things should we be seeing here? Germany is a great example. They have a branch in their public health department that's dedicated to sexuality education and sexual violence prevention. They, um, that means that they have experts housed in a government department to design sex ed curriculum and resources and materials. They engage in both domestic and international research around it. Um, and they assist the states and the state education departments to roll it out, train teachers, engage parents. But certainly in, in most of the countries I visited, they see sex education or sexual violence prevention, sexual well-being as sitting at an intersection of health and education and rights, whereas in this country we've sort of put it at this intersection of education and justice. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese and I'm speaking to lawyer, writer Katrina Marson, who's written this book, Legitimate Sexpectations. It's all about sex education, consent, and where we are with this whole issue in Australia. So when we talk about what we've seen in New South Wales, for instance, introducing consent education mm-hmm. and other states likely to, to head in a similar direction, positive step, obviously, but you're saying it needs to be more than something that's just added to the curriculum. Yeah, so there's a couple of answers to that question. The first being that consent is obviously a key part of comprehensive relationships and sexuality education, but it's not the be-all and end-all. There is so much more to the way that we engage with other people and and relationships with other people, whether that's friendships or intimate relationships. There's so much more to it than just this legalistic idea of what consent is or is not. Um, we need to be talking about things like rights, well-being, autonomy, uh, the ability to articulate how we feel, to make space for someone else to say say or communicate how they feel, queer sexuality, trans issues, all these sorts of things form part of a comprehensive relationships and sexuality education program more than just consent. The other part of your question was about consent going into the curriculum. The curriculum is one, one aspect of this. Um, I have said before that having a good curriculum is like having a great vaccine in a pandemic. You can have the best product in the world, but if you don't have the means to store it, to transport it, to get it into people's arms, it will simply spoil on the shelf. So if you don't have teachers who feel well-equipped to deliver on the curriculum, if they're not trained, if they don't feel confident, if they are concerned that they don't have the support of school leadership, they might get a tricky question from one of their students. They might be concerned about parent backlash, for example. Similarly, if you're not engaging the parent community, um, parent and caregiver community, then it means that if young people are getting great lessons at school, but then they go home, 
or are exposed to messages that contradict some of those lessons at school, inadvertently or otherwise, then uh, it might undo some of the great uh, work that we're seeing in the sex education curriculum itself. So this is why just putting it in the curriculum, I say, is a milestone, but it's not the finish line. And I mean, you've spoken with so many young Australians about these issues and what you're getting from them is that, that they do want a lot more information, that they're crying out for more information. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a really consistent call that we've heard and it's a call that needs to be answered. Young people are telling us in no uncertain terms that they have been let down and are being let down by our failure to educate them about these topics, to give them comprehensive information, not just no means no, but how do I work out if I like somebody? What does being ready feel like? We always say, you know, we need to wait till you're ready. What does that look like for me? What does that feel like? How do I actually ask someone what they're into or how to explore things with them um, without killing the mood? How do I um, articulate and advocate for myself in a situation? So it's, it's what young people are asking for. And if we fail to answer that call, we're betraying young people again and again. Yeah, it's really interesting research. I know a lot of people will want to read more about this. They can in the book. Author, lawyer, Katrina Marson, thanks for coming on Hack. Fantastic. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, Katrina's book, Legitimate Sexpectations, is out now. It's a really great read. So interesting to hear what uh, other countries are doing. And it's so different across the world, right? I've got some messages coming in. Somebody says, better sex education may have prevented my sexual assault. And maybe the police would have believed me and other victims. Better education would make a massive difference. Ryan says, it'd be nice if decent sex education would be consistent across states and territories, as well as different types of schools like private schools, religious schools or any others. And another person, a teacher, says, um, I'm a teacher who's passionate about teaching consent, but parent backlash makes me so nervous to teach it. We get backlash for everything now. And that is what we were hearing, what Katrina was saying. That's one of the big barriers of moving forward is often the reaction from parents. And we need to be focusing on that section of the community as well. Animals. Hack. Hack. Triple J. Yeah, we love wildlife stories. And i got to say, this is probably my favourite for a while because generally I'm telling you bad news. This species is endangered, that one's gone extinct. So you can imagine how surprised I was when I read a headline this morning that said Australia has more than 100 new species. What? What are they? Where did they come from? We've got to ask an expert and we've got one. Dr David Yates is the director of the Australian National Insect Collection at the CSIRO. G'day, David. Thanks for coming on Hack. No problems, Dave. Great to be with you. I was so surprised when I read this. More than 100 new animal and plant species discovered just in the past year. Where have they been all hiding? <laughs> well, they're, they're not hiding at all, Dave. There's lots and lots of uh, new species in Australia where the land of biodiversity, really a mega diverse continent with, um, we think about 500,000 species and 250,000 of those are insects. But we've only got around to naming probably a quarter of those, so there's plenty more to go. Most of your listeners, if they do any bushwalking, 
we'll be walking past plenty of new species of invertebrates. Yeah, crazy. Out there in Australia's bush. And I was going to ask that. So a lot of this is not just researchers, scientists who are out there looking for new species. It's just people stumbling across stuff and members of the public, I would think, taking pics, sending them through and them getting verified some way. Yeah, it's a little bit of all of those things, Dave, yes. Yeah. So we do do sort of specialised field work to look for new species in new areas. People send us in pictures and specimens that belong to new species and um, a lot of citizen scientists get involved as well. So what are some of these new species that have been discovered, like um, some of the more interesting ones? There's all sorts of things that, that we've managed to uh, discover and name this year. So there's plants, there's fish, there's a little trematode worm, there's weevils, there's uh, insects that live in fresh water. But the one that I like to talk about, because it's got a very interesting story, is a, is a new species of ants that was described this year. And it um, is interesting, not because of the ant itself, it's a nondescript little black ant, but it has a very interesting relationship with a, um, a rare butterfly. So one of our, um, one of Australia's native butterflies occurs in the Darling Downs in a couple of, couple of little populations there that we've been monitoring for quite a while. But in studying the butterfly, we've realised that it not only needs to feed on a plant, and in this case it's the bull oak, but it also needs these little ants to look after it or babysit it. So the, the caterpillars live inside uh, the ants' nests or under bark near the ants' nests and the ants carry them out to the leaves of the plant at, at night what? and let them feed and then carry them back. So normally a caterpillar would be, you know, dinner for, a, for an ant. It would think it was like a jelly bean. But in this case, the uh, caterpillar has tricked the ants into looking after them. That's crazy. That's so wild. Um, I imagine this means a lot for mapping our biodiversity in Australia. How is that going? Yeah, it does. I mean, one of the reasons we do this work is so that we can start to understand more about where these species occur, um, what might affect their sort of population levels and how to conserve them going into the future. But getting back to that, um, that caterpillar, Dave, the, um, you can see that the uh, caterpillar is protected by the ants because any, any uh, caterpillar that's covered in ants, most predators will leave alone because they don't want to have to deal with the ant. But uh, um, what does the ant get out of it? Well, uh, the caterpillars have, little, have, have evolved little glands on their bodies that uh, produce uh, a sugary secretion that the ants feed on, but also the caterpillars have, have developed other glands that produce chemicals that really drug the ants into behaving the way they do. So they really get um, quite excited about the caterpillars and don't eat them and hang around and look after them because of the, um, the chemicals that the caterpillars supply to them. It's a bit like um, party drugs for ants. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. David, um, you were saying that there's a whole bunch out there that's still waiting to be discovered probably. Do we do we have any idea how many species haven't been discovered? Well, yes, we do. It would be, you know, what's 250,000 minus about 70 or 80,000? It's, <laughs> it's quite a few. It's in between 100 and 200,000 probably based on current estimates. But a lot of the work 
that we do to describe our biodiversity requires pretty detailed analysis of their you know of their form and their genetics and where they live and what they do so we're often both finding completely new things as well as looking carefully at old species that have been described in the past and discovering that they might belong to um, two or three species rather than one. Right. And I guess also, is it sometimes the case that you think that something may have gone and then you find that actually it's still around? In, with invertebrates, Dave, that's very often the case that um, when someone thinks a species is um, on the decline, um, more surveys are done, and very often we find them in in other places uh, where they haven't been look, uh, we haven't looked before. So it's often a good news story when we start to do intensive sampling for invertebrates for particular species. Yeah, very very interesting stuff, and we've got some great messages coming through from people who love the sound of this. Um, you know, love the sound of ants on party drugs is what they're saying. <laughs> Dr. David <laughs> Yates from the CSIRO, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. No, great to be with you, Dave. Take care. Bye-bye. And we've got so many other messages coming in. A lot of messages about the number of Daves that we've had on the show today. Somebody says, must be the day of Daves today. Very Dave-heavy hack this evening. And another person, is this the third Dave on the show today? Well, actually, no, Matt in Werribee. It was the fourth Dave. I don't know how that happened, how we got so many Daves on hack today. But, you know, tomorrow... We might diversify a bit and, you know, invite people with other names onto the show, even though I'm pretty, pretty fond of this one. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. So big thanks to all of our guests, especially all of the Daves that joined me on the program. There were so many, I think about four from Count. Don't know how that happened. I'll catch you tomorrow. See you then.